This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. September the 3rd, 1803. Dear Sir, I have reflected much upon the conversation that I had with you when I had last the pleasure of seeing you about the power of the government of the United States to acquire territory and to admit new states into the Union. Upon examination of the Constitution, I find the power as broad as it could well be made. I am aware that this is to us delicate ground and perhaps my opinion may clash with the opinions given by our friends during the discussion of the British Treaty. Upon due consideration, it really appears to me that a different construction of the Constitution from that which I have given it would be to transfer the treaty-making power to Congress or to deprive the government of the United States of the capacity of making treaties. I should be wanting, in the sincerity and candour with which you have always permitted me to give you my opinion, if I was to forbear to recommend to you to avoid giving an opinion as to the competence of the treaty-making power, I should think it very probable If the treaty should be declared by you to exceed the constitutional authority of the treaty-making power, that it would be rejected by the Senate. And if that should not happen, that great use would be made with the people of a willful breach of the Constitution. I am, dear sir, with the greatest respect, your friend and humble servant, Wilson Carey Nicholas. Monticello, September 7th, 1803. Dear Sir, I am aware of the force of the observations you make on the power given by the Constitution to Congress to admit new states into the Union, without restraining the subject to the territory then constituting the United States. But when I consider that the limits of the United States are precisely fixed by the Treaty of 1783, that the Constitution expressly declares itself to be made for the United States, I cannot help believing the intention was to permit Congress to admit into the Union new states which should be formed out of the territory for which and under whose authority alone they were then acting. I do not believe it was meant that they might receive England, Ireland, Holland, etc. into it, which would be the case on your construction. When an instrument admits two constructions, the one safe, the other dangerous, the one precise, the other indefinite, I prefer that which is safe and precise. I had rather ask an enlargement of power from the nation where it is found necessary than to assume it by a construction which would make our powers boundless. I confess, then, I think it important in the present case to set an example against broad construction by appealing for new power to the people. If, however, our friends shall think differently, certainly I shall acquiesce with satisfaction confiding that the good sense of our country will correct the evil of construction when it shall produce ill effects. 
Accept my affectionate salutations and assurances of cordial esteem and respect. Thomas Jefferson. In the latter half of 1803, with news of the Louisiana Purchase disseminating among the various corners of the United States, both original and newly acquired, some key questions came to mind. For most, the questions were of a practical nature. How would the U.S. take control of and govern these new lands, and how would it be integrated into the fabric of the nation? However, for some, including the very president whose administration had negotiated the purchase, a lingering question gnawed at them. Was the Louisiana Purchase really legal under the Constitution? In this episode, we'll examine how the Americans of 1803 approached some of these questions. But before we dive in, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Chris and Elsa from the Flatpak History of Sweden podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. If you haven't listened to the Flatpak History of Sweden yet, after you get done with this episode, please be sure to either go to my website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, to find the link on the source notes page, or search for Flatpak History of Sweden wherever fine podcasts can be found. Elsa and Chris are taking their audience on a journey through Swedish history starting at the very beginning. As of this recording, they're in the Iron Age, and it's been fascinating to hear their insights into the various prehistoric cultures that inhabited the land that we now know of as Sweden. As an added bonus, they share with the audience a special Swedish word or phrase with each episode. With a dash of friendly humor and a passion for history, it's become a regular treat around Presidency's HQ to listen to Chris and Elsa on the Flatpak History of Sweden, and I think you'll like it as well. Tack så mycket. A couple of other items before we begin. I did want to mention that, though unfortunately my scheduled presentation at History Camp Philadelphia was canceled due to the COVID-19 crisis, I will be participating at another conference coming up, and this one requires no travel for speakers or participants. The Intelligent Speech Conference is taking place online on Saturday, June 27th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. With around 40 speakers, it should be an amazing day. If you're interested, tickets are available now for $10 by going to Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. I'll also post links on the website as well as share information on my social media. Finally, I'd also like to take a moment to mention our partnership with the Hero Soap Company. Given the current state of affairs, cleanliness is more important than ever, and the Hero Soap Company uses natural ingredients and essential oils to craft products that will soothe and cleanse your skin. Even better, they donate a percentage of their proceeds to charities that support veterans, first responders, and their families. By using the direct link on the website or going to Hero Soap Company, that's all one word, dot com, and using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, in addition to getting 10% off of your purchase, you'll not only help support those who have served the U.S. on the front lines, at home and abroad, You'll also help me to offset the cost of this podcast, ensuring that I'm able to keep going on this journey for years to come. Speaking of journeys, let's journey back to 1803 and pick up where we left off last time. On July 14th, 1803, over a week and a half after the initial news had filtered into town, the official documents related to the Louisiana Purchase arrived in Washington, D.C. Despite the administration's excitement over the purchase, As they worked to assess the situation, they only released a summary of the documents received. 
Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin had objections about the terms that had been negotiated for the payment. While he felt that he could work with the cost, Gallatin's objections related to the fact that the French, who by that point were back at war with Britain, quote, could immediately dispose of the stock issued for the purchase for cash, which they in fact did, while the U.S., quote, could not begin to curtail this debt for 15 years. Secretary of State Madison even shared these objections with James Monroe, who had helped negotiate the purchase, in a letter written on July 30th. Just where this letter would find Monroe, however, is something we'll have to discuss at a later date. Meanwhile, there were also concerns in the administration about what the purchase meant in relation to the Floridas. As the envoys to France themselves had considered, as discussed back in episode 3.14, just what the French had been given by Spain in the Third Treaty of San Ildefonso and what they in turn had sold to the Americans was not quite so clear. A report from U.S. Minister of France Robert Livingston had been received on July 13th with his assertion that the territory acquired had its eastern boundary on the Perdido River, the modern-day boundary between the Alabama Gulf Coast and the Florida Panhandle. Despite these assurances, it seems that Jefferson and Madison were not convinced. And on July 29th, Madison sent instructions to Livingston and Monroe requesting more information on, quote, the understanding which prevailed in the negotiation with respect to the boundaries of Louisiana, and particularly the pretensions and proofs for carrying it to the River Perdigo, are for including any lesser portion of West Florida. They want it to be absolutely certain as to what they were getting, especially since the president himself had doubts as to whether it was constitutional for them to be acquiring any land at all. According to Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, Jefferson first started making inquiries with his cabinet members around the constitutionality of negotiating a land acquisition treaty with France at the beginning of 1803. Now, throughout this podcast to date, we've discussed numerous treaties and negotiations for land purchases from indigenous peoples. But as we've stated previously, these were different. In the views of Jefferson and his contemporaries, these were treaties being negotiated for lands to which Americans already had rights as negotiated with treaties with European powers. Jefferson was already the quote-unquote great father ruling over the indigenous peoples. Whatever governance structures they had were not regarded by early 19th century American political leaders as sovereign nations of the same sort as those of Great Britain, France, Spain, and the like, as the native peoples were quote-unquote children after all. Yeah, before we go down the rabbit hole of paternalism, let's focus back in on the question at hand, which is the constitutionality of land acquisitions negotiated with European powers. Attorney General Levi Lincoln on January 10th had recommended a legal loophole. Instead of quote-unquote acquiring new land, why not negotiate with France an agreement quote to extend the boundaries of the Mississippi Territory and the state of Georgia respectively? Remember, at this point, They were just seeking New Orleans and the Floridas. Gallatin, when he read Lincoln's recommendation, asserted that he could not, quote, distinguish the difference between a power to acquire territory for the United States and a power to extend by treaty the territory of the United States. And thus, he didn't. As noted by Malone, quote, on his own part, the Secretary of the Treasury, who was such a stickler for financial regularity, tentatively assumed a constitutional position which was virtually indistinguishable from the liberal construction of his predecessor, Hamilton. As he explained to Jefferson, quote, To me, it would appear, first, that the United States as a nation 
have an inherent right to acquire territory. Second, that whatever that acquisition is by treaty, the same constituted authorities in whom the treaty-making power is vested have a constitutional right to sanction the acquisition. Third, that whenever the territory has been acquired, Congress have the power either of admitting into the Union as a new state or of annexing to a state with the consent of that state or of making regulations for the government of such territory. This was as broad of an interpretation of the Constitution as one could get. The president, however, was not convinced. He replied to Gallatin that, quote, I think it will be safer not to permit the enlargement of the Union, but by amendment of the Constitution. Thus, flash-forwarding six months later, we find Jefferson soon after receiving news that the Louisiana Purchase was a reality, drafting a constitutional amendment to state in writing the authority of the federal government to expand the borders of the United States. And indeed, we now know of at least two attempts that he made. Again, from Malone, quote, In neither case did he seek to enlarge the powers of the general government by a specific grant of authority to acquire territory by treaty. His focus was instead on the, quote, practical problems arising from the acquisition of new territory, which one can't help but notice that, if approved, would give some legislative basis to a right to acquire territory that both Madison and Gallatin already accepted without question. When he sent his first draft out to his cabinet, they naturally had thoughts of their own, and both Madison and Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith tried their hands at drafts of their own. Despite Jefferson's concerns, upon receiving the text of the treaty and realizing that it had to be ratified within six months of its signing, which was at that point two and a half months prior, he realized that there was no time to lose, lest this opportunity slip through his fingers. Thus, on July 16th, Jefferson issued a proclamation calling Congress back in session three weeks earlier than they were scheduled to return, quote, to consult and determine on such matters as in their wisdom may be deemed for the welfare of the United States. Despite Jefferson's lofty words of the importance of the Senate, the date he set for their reconvening would allow them less than two weeks to decide on something that would forever reshape the nation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To understand part of the motivation behind Jefferson's forcing the Senate into a corner with this quick timeline, as well as his oversensitivity about ensuring that his actions were above the board, we must consider the intense criticism he had received in the press in late 1802 and into 1803. Oddly enough, some of the hardest-hitting criticism was not coming from Hamilton's New York Evening Post, but rather from a former Democratic-Republican in Virginia. It's been a while since we talked about James Callender, episode 3.5 by my mark. So let's discuss what's happened since last we left him irate and drunk. His anger at feeling shut out of Jefferson's circle now that Jefferson was in a position to reward him for all the work he had done on Jefferson's behalf to get him to the presidency had not dissipated. As we previously discussed, Callender had heard enough stories about Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings 
and indeed spent some time in the early part of Jefferson's presidency trying to corroborate the details by talking with members of the Virginia gentry and gathering tidbits of local gossip from folks around Charlottesville. As historian Annette Gordon-Reed notes, Callender's motivations may not have been solely about getting revenge. Quote, he, i.e. Callender, seems to have been genuinely upset at the notion of Jefferson's involvement in miscegenation. Callender was greatly offended by the extent of the easy contact between white men and black women in the South. He found Richmond's black dances particularly repellent because they were often attended by white males of the local gentry. Upon his arrival in that town, Callender led a campaign to shut down the dances because married white men were using these occasions to meet and consort with black women. He also exposed local white men who went to theaters and other outings with black women. Coupled with his personal feelings of being wronged, Callender was fired up and ready to expose Jefferson. However, he needed an outlet in which to do so. Opportunity came knocking in February of 1802 when Henry Pace, who had just started printing the Federalist newspaper, The Richmond Recorder, the previous summer, offered Callender the opportunity to become his partner. Jefferson, however, would not be Callender's first target. Starting in March 1802, Callender started attacking members of the cabinet and prominent National Democratic-Republican leaders one by one. Postmaster General Gideon Granger, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, Representative William Branch Giles, Philadelphia Aurora publisher William Duane, National Intelligencer publisher Samuel Harrison Smith, Callender would lodge accusations and criticisms and slanders against all of them in print. Only towards the end of the summer would Callender set his sights on the president himself. In September 1802, Callender would launch his biggest salvo yet. Readers of the September 1st issue found the following printed in the Richmond Recorder. Quote, it is well known that the man, whom it delighteth the people to honor, keeps, and for many years has kept, as his concubine, one of his slaves. Her name is Sally. The name of her eldest son is Tom. His features are said to bear a striking, though sable, resemblance to those of the president himself. By this wench Sally, our president has had several children. There is not an individual in the neighborhood in Charlottesville who does not believe the story, and not a few who know it. Mute, 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 yes, very mute, will all those Republican printers of biographical information be upon this point. However, Callender wasn't done there. In later articles, Callender would attack Sally herself using vile rep using vile, reprehensible terms for her, and even referred to her children as, quote, a litter. Callender also printed documents proving that Jefferson had sent him money to print the prospect before us, the attack pamphlet that had gotten Callender arrested under the Sedition Act during the Adams presidency, as discussed in episode 2.20. He also printed the tale of Jefferson's pursuit of his married neighbor, Betsy Walker, as was discussed back in episode 3.1. Naturally, the Federalist Press had a field day. They reprinted Callender's articles far and wide for several months and added in commentary of their own. The Sally Hemings story in particular invited more embellishments, with one Federalist editor asserting that Sally, quote, 
has a room to herself at Monticello in the character of a seamstress to the family and was treated by the rest of his house as one much above the level of the other servants. It also inspired some attempts at verse, including, quote, Thy tricks with sooty sow give o'er. Indulge thy body, Tom, no more, but try to save thy soul. Other attempts at political satire and verse relating to Sally Hemings at the time were much more vulgar. And by and large, it seems that there was little consideration for Sally as an individual who had been, by law, unable to refuse any advances from Jefferson. But rather, the focus was on embarrassing Jefferson as much as possible. For one Federalist in particular, however, Callender's articles opened up some lingering wounds. Before Callender's conversion to the anti-Jefferson cause, Alexander Hamilton had himself been a frequent target of Callender's venom. Thus, he and his circle did not respond with quite the zeal of other Federalists to Callender's articles. His father-in-law, former Senator Philip Schuyler, wrote to Hamilton on August 19, 1802 that, quote, If Mr. Jefferson has really encouraged that wretch Callender to vent his calumny against you and his predecessors in office, the head of the former must be abominably wicked and weak. Despite any animosity lingering in Hamilton towards his treatment at the hands of Jefferson, he also knew what it was like to be on the receiving end and to have his personal life laid out bare for all to see. Thus, the New York Evening Post proclaimed Calendar to be quote-unquote a reptile and asserted that its own editorial leanings and coverage were quote, adverse to all personalities not immediately connected with public considerations. Hamilton wanted to take the high road. As that path can often be, though, Hamilton would find it a lonely one, as most of the press on both sides were more than willing to get down in the gutter. Democratic-Republican editors would denounce Calendar. William Duane of the Philadelphia Aurora would at times, quote, try to match Calendar in violence, and asserted that, quote, public resentment was aroused against the calumniator. Meriwether Jones of the Richmond Examiner Ask Callender in print whether he was, quote, not afraid that some avenging fire will consume your body as well as your soul, and bemoaned, quote, Oh, could a dose of James River, like Lethe, have blessed you with forgetfulness, for once you would have neglected your whiskey. The latter quote in particular, I'd like you to remember, dear listener, for it proved to be rather prophetic. For his part, Jefferson himself remained silent though he did remark in a letter to U.S. Minister of France, Robert R. Livingston, on October 10, 1802, that, quote, You will have seen by our newspapers that with the aid of a lying renegado from republicanism, the Federalists have opened all their sluices of calumny. Despite the embarrassment, he felt that the controversy would not cause much harm politically, and thus, like Hamilton, decided to take the high road. In a dark poetic irony, James Callender would meet his end after somehow ending up on the low road. After yet again indulging in an evening of heavy drinking, Callender's body would be, quote, found bobbing in three feet of water in the James River on July 17, 1803. The official inquiry concluded that it was an accidental death due to his intoxicated state. But as can be imagined, and given retaliatory statements such as those of Meriwether Jones in print, it has been speculated for centuries that Callender met his end through foul play. We will likely never know the truth of how Callender met his end, 
but I think his legacy is best summed up by Annette Gordon-Reed, though pointing out that, quote, it is possible that without Calendar, the public might never have known the name Sally Hemings. We cannot ever forget that Calendar, quote, was a despicable individual ruled by venom and racism. His motivations were base and self-serving, and he was willing to destroy all that he had helped create and tear down those who he'd once claimed as friends if he didn't feel that he was getting his way. Calendar serves as a cautionary example to us all, myself included, as to where one can be led in following the darker impulses of political discourse and engagement. Despite the sudden end of that primary source of criticism, Jefferson still felt a need to justify what he knew would be one of the most important actions of his administration. When he left Washington, D.C. around July 18, 1803, bound for Monticello, Jefferson had many questions on his mind. It was clear, due to the numerous questions that he had drafted with the aid of his personal secretary, Lewis Harvey, relating to the specifics of Louisiana and the current state of affairs in that colony, that Jefferson had his mind set on agreeing to the purchase. But he still wasn't entirely certain as to his legal authority to do so. Thus, in late August, he sent Secretary of State Madison and Attorney General Lincoln another draft of a constitutional amendment which would imply, quote, the constitutional right to acquire territory and admit Louisiana as, quote, a part of the U.S. Its white inhabitants shall be citizens and stand, as to their rights and obligations, on the same footing with other citizens of the U.S. in analogous situations. Jefferson and Madison would meet at Monticello in September and discuss various issues. While we have no way of knowing exactly what was discussed during their meetings, Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum notes that Madison was present at Monticello when Jefferson drafted his response to Senator Wilson Carey Nicholas, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. Excerpts from Nicholas's letter and Jefferson's response were the opening quotes for this episode. In his response, while still expressing his concerns to proceeding without a more well-defined authority that the constitutional amendment would provide, the president ultimately acquiesced to the reality of the situation. There was a time limit on ratifying the treaty with France, and the more news that came from Europe, the more it seemed that the acquisition of Louisiana was threatened by circumstances far more detrimental than possible constitutional issues. On August 17th, Jefferson received a report from U.S. Minister to France Robert R. Livingston that, quote, it seems that the French First Consul Napoleon is less pleased with the Louisiana Purchase Treaty since the ratification than before, and I am persuaded that if he could conveniently get off, he would. In short, he appears to wish the thing undone, and he will not be sorry to see an opposition to its ratification with us, or such a delay as will render it void. As if the French wanting to renege on the deal wasn't bad enough, on September 12th, Jefferson received from Madison a letter sent to him by Spanish minister to the U.S. Arujo, reporting that the Spanish king, Carlos Cuatro, was quite upset at the news that France had sold Louisiana to the U.S. Under the agreement where they had arranged to turn over Louisiana to France, the Spanish government had received assurances that France would not sell it off to another power. The thing that made this letter so disconcerting is that, technically, Spain had not turned over control of Louisiana to France yet. As the president wrote Secretary Madison two days later, quote, I think it possible that Spain, recollecting our former eagerness for the island of New Orleans, may imagine she can, by a free delivery of that, redeem the residue of Louisiana, and that she may withhold the peaceable cession of it. In that case, no doubt, 
force must be used. Madison gave the U.S. Consul in New Orleans a heads up, and the president and his cabinet reassembled in Washington, D.C., and met on the 25th about the situation. Meanwhile, Arujo wrote again to Madison, asserting that the Spanish government was beginning to question, quote, that the French had fully carried out the provisions of the Treaty of San Ildefonso. Madison's response of October 4th, which was assuredly done after consultation with Jefferson and probably with the entire cabinet, began by expressing that, quote, the repugnance manifested in these communications on the part of His Catholic Majesty to the cession of Louisiana lately made by the French Republic to the United States was as little expected as the objections to the transaction can avail against its solidity. The United States have given unquestionable proofs to the Spanish government and nation of their justice, their friendship, and their desire to maintain the best neighborhood. As far as the matter went of questioning France's rights to sell Louisiana to the U.S., Madison had a letter from no less authority than the Spanish First Minister, Pedro Savalos, asserting that, quote, By the retrocession made to France of Louisiana, this power regains the said province with the limits it had and saving the rights acquired by other powers. The United States can address themselves to the French government to negotiate the acquisition of territories which may suit their interests. Any claim Spain had on Louisiana was null and void by their own admission, but until the Senate ratified the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, there was a danger that this golden goose of an opportunity would take flight. It was under this cloud that the new session of Congress assembled. There was not just one, but two personal bits of joy to the coming session of Congress for the president. His sons-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph and John Wales Epps were not only coming to assume their seats in the House of Representatives, but both would be lodging with Jefferson at the president's house. As described by Randolph's biographer William Gaines, quote, the new congressmen were luckier in one respect than most of their fellow legislators, who were forced to accept the rude accommodations of noisy and unclean boarding houses where they lived like bears, brutalized and stupefied. The furnishings at the president's house were plain and simple to excess, but the president's steward and French cook kept the table well supplied, and Republican simplicity was, in this respect at least, united to Epicurean delicacy. Despite his joy at the prospect of having these members of his extended family present, given what we know of him, one has to imagine that Jefferson still longed for the company of his two daughters. His eldest daughter, Martha, in addition to her new duties of managing both the Randolph Plantation Edge Hill and her father's plantation at Monticello while her husband was away, was also pregnant with her sixth child. Likewise, Jefferson's younger daughter, Maria, was pregnant, but wasn't as far along as Martha when her husband set off to Washington. Thus, with the exception of Dolly Madison occasionally pitching in, the president's house would continue to run without a female host managing social affairs as Congress came back to town. On October 17, 1803, as Congress came back into session, Jefferson sent over his third annual message. He began by asserting that, quote, In calling you together, fellow citizens, at an earlier day than was contemplated by the act of the last session of Congress, I have not been insensible to the personal inconveniences necessarily resulting from an unexpected change in your arrangements. But matters of great public concernment have rendered this call necessary, and the interest you feel in these will supersede in your minds all private considerations. 
After a reminder of the situation of the right of deposit being denied American merchants in New Orleans that had accorded Monroe's special diplomatic mission to seek the purchase of that port, Jefferson reported to Congress that, quote, the enlightened government of France saw with just discernment the importance to both nations of such liberal arrangements as might best and permanently promote the peace, friendship, and interest of both and the property and sovereignty of all Louisiana, which had been restored to them, have on certain conditions been transferred to the United States by instruments bearing date the 30th of April last. When these shall have received the constitutional sanction of the Senate, they will without delay be communicated to the representatives also for the exercise of their functions as to those conditions which are within the powers vested by the Constitution and Congress. Though there were some murmurings of discontent about Jefferson's message that it seemed to assume that Senate ratification was a fait accompli, one only has to look at the composition of the body to see that there was an overwhelming Democratic-Republican majority in both the upper and lower houses of Congress. Though party affiliation wasn't quite as defined and declared as it would come to be, Jefferson estimated that the 8th Congress was composed of 25 Democratic-Republicans to 9 Federalists in the Senate, and 103 Democratic-Republicans to 39 Federalists in the House. In three days, the Senate voted, and, with a Federalist, Senator Jonathan Dayton of New Jersey joining all of the Democratic Republicans present, the Louisiana Purchase Treaty was ratified on October 20th. After working out some of the technicalities with the aid of French chargé d'affaires Louis-André Pichot, ratifications were exchanged on October 21st, and the President was able to turn again to Congress to pass the legislation required to implement the provisions of the treaty, including the creation of the certificates of stock to cover the purchase, and authorization to formally take control of the Louisiana colony. As Jefferson reminded them once more, quote, some important conditions cannot be carried into execution, but with the aid of the legislature and that time presses a decision on them without delay. This time, however, Federalists would start to push back. Though Jefferson had sent over some documents to the Senate when they requested proof of French ownership of Louisiana, he had not sent over the Third Treaty of San Aldefonso or any document definitively proving that the Spanish had relinquished Louisiana to France. Thus, a motion was put forward in the House for Jefferson to provide both the treaty and the deed of session. But the resolution was defeated by a vote of 57 for to 59 against. Though this was a victory for the administration in trying to move things along, the fact that a good number of Democratic Republicans had voted in favor of requesting the documents was a bit disconcerting. Thankfully for Jefferson, he had strong allies in Congress who worked to push the necessary legislation through. Based on a draft provided by Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, Senator John Breckinridge put forward a bill to authorize Jefferson, quote, to take possession and occupy the territory ceded by France, employing the armed services for that purpose as he might deem necessary. The bill also, at least on a temporary basis, addressed what type of government the U.S. would employ to administer Louisiana. It would take much longer than Congress had in the special session to develop the legislation and structure of a new territorial government. So for the time being, Breckinridge's bill proposed, quote, that until Congress should provide otherwise, 
all governmental powers exercised by the officers of the present Spanish government should be vested in such persons and exercised in such manner as the president should direct. However, the current system of government in Louisiana was far from what Americans would consider democratic. And Senator William Plumer, Federalist from New Hampshire, asserted that, had Federalists put forward such a bill, the accusations of them being monarchical would have been flying from the Democratic Republicans. Still, the bill passed the Senate by a vote of 26 to 6, and by October 31st, it passed into law. In the minority opposing the bill was a new senator from the state of Massachusetts named John Quincy Adams. I feel it only right to take a second to get caught up with John Quincy now that he's moving back into the narrative before we examine the second major bill needed to implement the Louisiana Purchase, especially considering John Quincy would play a role in its movement through Congress. As you may remember from episodes 2.24 and 2.25, one of President Adams's final acts in office was to send the order recalling his eldest son from his diplomatic post in Prussia. John Quincy and his growing family returned to the U.S., and he worked to determine what he was to do with his life. As he noted in his diary on January 28, 1802, quote, I feel strong temptation and have great provocation to plunge into political controversy, but I hope to preserve myself from it by the considerations which have led me to the resolution of renouncing. A politician in this country must be the man of a party. I would fain be the man of my whole country. Despite his concerns, the draw of politics was too great, and thus he accepted his election to the Massachusetts State Senate in April 1802. As noted by JQA biographer Samuel Flagg Bemis, quote, It was the novitiate of his legislative labors. He was not able to affect much good or prevent much evil. He attempted some reforms and aspired to check some abuses, but with little success. Despite his lack of legislative achievements, John Quincy had delivered two public addresses which continued to further his public acclaim, and thus he was put forward as the Federalist candidate for election to the U.S. House of Representatives later in the year. He lost that election in November to the Democratic-Republican candidate, Representative William Eustace, who had been redistricted to the 1st District. The election was a close one, though. 1,899 votes for Eustace to 1,840 for Adams. His loss in that election, however, meant that he was available when word came that Senator Jonathan Mason was planning to retire from his seat. The young Adams would face competition for that election from one of his father's opponents in the Federalist Party. That's right. Former Secretary of State Timothy Pickering was in a position to make a comeback. After his ouster from the Adams administration, Pickering had made his way back to Massachusetts and had continued to plot and scheme. As noted by historian David Hackett Fisher, despite the fact that Pickering still enjoyed many connections and asserted some influence as a party leader, quote, Pickering did not sit in the inner circles of New England federalism. He sometimes complained very bitterly about the way in which the Federalist at Boston checked and frustrated him. In the battle for the open Senate seat, it seemed as if yet again Pickering would be checked by an Adams as the Federalist Party caucus, quote, agreed that if Pickering should not be elected to the long term on two trials, then the members would vote for Adams on the third test. It took until the fourth ballot, but ultimately, John Quincy Adams was elected to succeed Mason. Pickering was not left empty-handed, though, for Senator Dwight Foster sent in his resignation, 
and Pickering was duly elected to fulfill the remainder of Foster's term. As noted by Bemis, quote, John Quincy Adams let it be known that he harbored no feeling against Pickering because of the latter's dissidence from former President John Adams. But almost from the first, a chasm opened between the younger, senior senator and the older, junior senator from Massachusetts. Men so different in temperament, in national outlook, and patriotism. As noted by Fisher, even among the younger set of Federalists, John Quincy, quote, was quite unlike the others. In the long history of the Republic, few men who have won high office have been as disagreeable as he. Even Bayard, who could manage to get along with nearly anybody, found him singularly cold and repulsive. The contrast between John Quincy Adams and the young Federalists in Congress is in many ways sharp and extreme. They were extroverts. He was shy and withdrawn. They were shallow men, bored by appeals to political fundamentals. He meditated and wrote profoundly upon all manner of subjects. Yet for all these contrasts, there are significant comparisons to be made. Like the others, more than the others, young Adams was devoured by the glorious fault, political ambition. The tension between his drive to success and his commitment to principles will be something that we will watch play out in his role in the narrative moving forward. And it began with John Quincy's first days in Congress. Senator Adams had not made it in time to vote on the ratification of the Louisiana Purchase Treaty due to delays that he and Louisa Catherine, his wife, had experienced on their journey from Boston. Had he been there for the vote, though, he would have just increased the spread by which it passed. Like his colleague Dayton, as well as other Federalist leaders, including Alexander Hamilton, former U.S. Minister Rufus King, and his own father, the former president, Senator Adams supported the annexation of Louisiana. However, he opposed Senator Breckinridge's bill, giving Jefferson wide latitude in taking possession of Louisiana, as he felt that it violated the constitutional rights of the citizens of that colony, who were now becoming United States citizens, and thus were to share in the equal rights and privileges of citizenship as any other U.S. citizens. Again, though, this didn't mean that he opposed the purchase, as we'll see in a moment. In the House, which is where the bill to create the certificates of stock necessary for the purchase of Louisiana had to originate by constitutional mandate, Jefferson relied on a key ally, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. It's been a while since we talked about Randolph, episode 2.19 by my count. Despite Randolph's eccentric nature, when Nathaniel Macon was elected Speaker of the House in December 1801, he appointed his associate Randolph as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Up until that point, Ways and Means, like other congressional committees of the time, was a temporary committee, only appointed and charged when it was deemed necessary. However, the first session of the 7th Congress saw legislation pass which created the Ways and Means Committee as a standing committee and charged Ways and Means, quote, to take into consideration all such reports of the Treasury Department and all such propositions relative to the revenue, as may be referred to them by the House, to inquire into the state of the public debt, of the revenue, and of the expenditures, and to report from time to time their opinion thereon. Randolph's position as chairman of this committee put him, quote, in daily official communication with the executive departments and elevated him to a position of leadership in the party and in Congress. It was in this leadership capacity that Randolph took responsibility for guiding through the House a bill to create the certificates of stock. 
Once the House had passed the bill, Senator Plumer, despite his opposition to the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, joined with Senator Adams in putting forward the House bill for approval in the Senate. By November 10th, the bill was passed and signed off by the president, and he could once again claim bipartisan support. Adams, however, was set to prove that he wasn't completely in lockstep with the administration. Some Federalist members of Congress, including Adams, complained that there was no constitutional authority for the federal government to acquire territory, and Adams would put forward the idea of a committee to draft a constitutional amendment which would, in fact, spell out that the federal government had such authority and that the residents of any acquired lands would become citizens. Adams's bill, however, would only receive two votes in favor besides his own. Senator James Hillhouse, Federalist from Connecticut, and Adams's colleague from Massachusetts, Senator Pickering. One has to wonder if Senator Adams was aware of just how in line his thinking was with that of the president. No matter. With Adams's bill out of the way, the Louisiana Purchase was clear to be finalized. Granted, there was much more to figure out in terms of integrating the new lands and their citizens into the United States. But for now, the Jefferson administration's agenda had advanced without a hitch. And the president had a huge 828,000 square mile feather in his cap as the presidential election year loomed. Before Jefferson's mind could turn to the election, however, there was soon news from Virginia which likely warmed his heart. On September 2, 1803, with her husband busy at work in Congress, Martha Jefferson Randolph gave birth to her sixth child, a daughter named Mary Jefferson Randolph. For Jefferson, though it got off to a bit of a rough start, And despite the bumps in the road along the way, 1803 had been a year filled with numerous personal triumphs and joys. Before the final chapter was written on the year, however, Jefferson would have the displeasure of meeting someone who provides the name for our next episode, which I have dubbed a Not-So-Merry Mary. Special thanks again to Ilsa and Chris of the Flatpak History of Sweden podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Special thanks also to friends of the podcast, The Itinerant Band, who graciously allowed us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this series. To find out more about the Flatpak History of Sweden, the Itinerant Band, or this podcast, head on over to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. There you can find past episodes of the podcast, as well as information on how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help to support Presidencies. Speaking of... I'd like to give a special shout out to our patrons, Michelle, Kara, and our newest patron, Scott. Thanks to all of them, as well as a patron who has opted to remain anonymous, I have more financial resources at my disposal to start thinking about technology upgrades and getting access to additional research resources. If you'd like to make a monthly pledge, go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies. If you're not able to contribute financially, but still want to help, Leaving a rating and review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser would just take a minute of your time and would be a great help for folks looking for a new podcast to check out to know why they should give presidencies a listen. If you're not already, please feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you'd like to send me an email, I can be reached at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, I wanted to thank all of you for listening. I'm so glad to have you on this journey through presidential history with me. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, 
and take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.